Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. Thank you for joining us this Sunday. I'm Donya. How you guys doing today? I uh, hope you guys are all doing very, very well. Again, from both of us, apologies for the last show and the little technical gremlins. Yeah, I don't want to mention that show. It was just a mess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're hoping things are going to go a lot more smoothly today. So, Donia, would you like to introduce this week's topic? Sure. This week's topic is about um, writing a book and doing a blog and the differences in it. And both Brian and I have um, done one of each. I actually had a blog a while ago, but I, I, I can't. That requires a lot more attention and I just cannot get in it. So that, yeah, Brian is going to be the one. It's going to be like, I'm going to interview him and he's going to interview me. So we're going to, you know, just really talk about the, the, the pros and cons of doing, having a blog and actually writing a book. But the main thing is getting your story out there. So, so as, as usual, as we're kind of talking about our experiences and kind of our suggestions and things you should kind of bear in mind, look out for, um, please, please do post your questions. Uh, we try to answer all of them. We answer as many as we can, um, but we can't ask questions if you don't ask them. <laughs> so, Donia, if you'd like to kind of talk us through the journey that you went through writing your book, because that, that was quite a learning curve for you and quite the experience. <laughs> you would know because you were right along with me. <laughs> so before we go into that, let's say hi to our you know group. We got some messages already. They were popping up while the thing was going through. Um, so Rose Clinton, I think, is a new person. She says hello. And as always, our wonderful cousin Karen is on here saying hi. Um, got Karen Bertram. You guys, there's still some issues. I'm not even going to lie because I'm clicking on it to show your comments and it's not doing it. So um, uh, I'd like to say hello to Anessa uh, from Ohio. So we have oh, some. yes, yes. Anessa, Anessa Wyman. And then there's Mary Wright and, of course, Deborah. How you guys doing? And Stacy L., She's from Dallas. So we have Denmark, we have Ohio, we have Chicago, we have South Carolina. There's Martha, who I believe is my cousin on the Brooks line, or me and Brian's cousin on the Brooks line. Um, so how you guys doing? So I'm gonna uh oh, and then Brian, you have someone by the name of Michelle Chisholm, newly discovered cousin. Oh, yes. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get right into it. So what I'm going to tell you guys about is my journey in writing my book. Um, hold on, I'm going to get it for you. So for those that don't know, I'm sorry, it was all the way on the other side. For those that don't know, I wrote a book, and my book is about Edgefield, South Carolina, um, and my family as a whole. But it's it's not a it's not a researching book. It's literally my journey and what I went through to find the people. The name of the book is called Comes to the Light, Learning About the Entangled Families of Edgefield, South Carolina. And it's sold on Amazon.com and also it's on Barnes and Noble as well. And um, 
She says she's related to the Brooks as well. Well, then, hi, cousin. <laughs> but um, yeah, I am. Um, so I wrote this book, and I wrote this book because I was finding out all this information about my family, and not just finding out the information about my family, but I, I wrote it because I started to find out about myself, and I felt like, gosh, if other people would do this, what would they learn about themselves? What would they know? and all that other good stuff. So this was why I started writing a book. And um, originally I started writing with a group. There were two sets of groups and I ended up coming out of each one for different reasons. And um, my, my our cousin, Brian and our cousin, Sheila, I was sitting down with her and I was talking one day and I was telling her a story about my mother and Aretha Franklin. And she was so enamored with the story she was like listen you need to write a book forget everything else forget about everybody else you write your story and so that's when I started writing my story and um the journey in writing this story is totally different from blogging and I think I can I'm able to say this because blogging you have to focus. Like Brian is going to go into detail about about that. But when I was blogging, I was just telling you what I knew and that was it. But once I had to write the book, I couldn't blog too because I was telling my story. So that's what stopped me from blogging. And I had to share all of these different things that were going on and what was happening and, and the different stuff that I was finding. And in the process... I had to learn how to write. And and I really still still don't feel like I know how to write. I just started writing from myself. So my book is what you see in front of you right now. It's it's written as if I'm standing right there telling you the story. And a lot of people like that. A lot of people was, you know, was comfortable with it. But the journey came in, the big journey came in when we had to publish. And, and how I was supposed to publish it. So I published, I did a self-publishing and self-publishing, I did it with, oh my God, the name just went away, Brian. What was the name of them? I can look it up. Oh, that's it. Create space. Um, and it's through amazon.com. And basically you have to do everything. You set your you set your book up the way you want it to be. You choose whether you want it hardback or cover. You choose the paper. You choose, um, you create the cover itself, which was just hail on wheels for us. Um, you do everything. You do the, the entire thing and then you purchase your sample. And once you purchase your sample, you, you spend like two or three dollars for the book and they send it to you and then you get to look at it and everything. But it was just, I think the biggest issue was trying to get things like um, copyright information, you know, um, what was the other thing? The, oh, the so, ISBN numbers. We the didn't realize ISBN that. Number, right. We, the ISBN didn't have two. Yeah, I, I need to have two, right. So, because you have to, every time you redo a book, you, you're literally getting a new ISBN number. Um, so, it's a lot. It's, it's just a lot that it entails when it comes to writing a book. One of the other things that we had to focus on was getting permission. So in my book, 
I have I do have some pictures um, like this one right here. I don't know if you can see it that well, but I'll pull it up to the to the camera. Yep. <laughs> okay. I found this picture online and I was able to find the guy that actually took it. It was such a great picture. First of all, it was taken by someone who was a real estate agent in Edgefield, South Carolina, and he was trying to you know, sell land, sell real estate in that area. And he took the picture and it was beautiful. So it was perfect for my first chapter and I had to send him a message. And when I sent him a message, I was asking him, you know, I would really like to use your picture in my book. Well, he finally responded and he said, yes. And there's certain things that you have to do. I don't care if it's family or if it's someone you've never known, you have to get a release because this will save you from being sued later on. So if people think your book is doing a whole bunch, you're making a whole bunch of money, they'll try to sue you for it. So I had this form, I'm going to pull it up. Brian, I'm gonna put it solo. And um, so basically what that is, is um, a release form. And on the form, it actually tells you what it says is, I, the undersigned, do hereby consent, you know, that Danya has the right to blah, 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 blah. But at the bottom of the form is where you see, you know, where they have to sign it. They have to put, you know, whatever information in that needs to be done. And I'm sorry, it's pausing. I hope it's not pausing on y'all end. But it has paused on me, so I don't know what's going on. But yeah, that's the form. And the form will you once you get that signed, they have to send it back to you and you hold on to it. And if you hold on to that form, I can never be sued by him for this book because he gave me rights to that picture. And and that's basically, you know, it's that's a basic thing what we do. So let me remove it. Well while you're doing that, I was gonna say what I really liked about the was the approach that you took because it wasn't a really kind of dry genealogical book about Joe Bloggs, Mary, Jane Smythe, and they had, you know, who begat John and Amy and Susie and whatnot. They were real stories. And in those yes. stories, you're actually, you were sharing your research journey. You were sharing all the different ways that you had to use to find the information that you found about the ancestors, at least the specific ones that you were covering in the book. And yes. I felt that for newbie gene genealogists, and I mean, let's face it, there's so many different records that you can access. But what I really liked is you were pulling from very non-traditional kind of genealogical resources, like newspapers, for instance. Um, and pouring through the newspapers, you, know, you found some really, really remarkable stories, like John Yeldell's, <laughs> two chapters um, in the book. Yeah. Like I said, you know, so, like I said, some family history and genealogy books can be really, really dry. I mean, they're important because you need to know who begat whom and how far back things kind of go. But it doesn't really tell you that much about their research journey. Yours kind of, yours touches on both of those, those quite a bit, uh, which is what I, which is what I personally liked about it. Thanks, Brian. You know, one of the things that, that, that I realized in the book, um, 
while writing the book, I realized that as an African-American, most African-Americans get really upset when they find who the slave owner was or that they even had someone who was enslaved. I wasn't. And it wasn't until I started writing the book that I realized that I was not angry about what I found. And I had prepared my mind so much that I just kind of put myself in a position where I didn't have any feeling and I felt bad about that. And um, I, I expressed that in the book. So that's what the book talks about. It talks about where my feelings are at the time, which is something that most genealogical books don't do. And, you know, they, they always go into who, so like Brian said, who did this and how many children they had and a family tree was posted and, you know, all these different things. And I, I didn't do that. I told you how I felt. I told you what was going on. What did I, every time I had a feeling about something, every time I found out somebody was my family, how I felt about it. Like I was more in shock about Preston Brooks than I was about the fact that Preston Brooks owned Martha and his mother owned Martha and the fact that she was actually the daughter of Preston's father. I wasn't shocked. It didn't shock me the way that it should have. I wasn't angry the way that I should have been because her father was selling his grandchildren off. And, you know, she could, because she was a breeder and I wasn't angry. And that kind of, I was actually angry at myself for not being angry, <laughs> if that makes sense. So that's, that's the kind of book it is. Um, the thing that I really liked was that you were covering so many different time periods from Moses Williams, who was born in the middle of the 18th century, down to, you know, your grandparents who founded churches, both in Edgefield and um, Washington, D.C. at the turn of the last century. So, I mean, yeah. just in terms of time periods, I mean, that's a, re that's a really huge segment of history to cover. But, and again, this is my opinion, I think the journey of the book and all the research that you did has made you the, the historian that you are about South Carolina. Because you weren't yes, just learning about your family. You weren't just, I can't even say your family. You weren't just learning about our family. You were learning right. about the, the whole history of the state of South Carolina, which put their actual story, individual stories into this beautiful context. Because you can't have one without the other. You can't tell the stories of our ancestors without talking about the societal impacts that were that had an impact on them, environmental impacts, all of that kind of stuff just makes for a much deeper kind of researching experience. Yeah, yeah. You sound like when you made me write the first chapter. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Brian was the was my right hand in, in writing this book. He continued to edit, go through it, telling me, you know, you need to take this file or let's change these wordings or let's do this or let's do that. And it was so funny because the last chapter written for the book was the first chapter. And because he read the book, he read everything and he was like, okay, you need, you need a chapter one. And I'm like turning into Arnold. What you talking about, Willis? I, I already wrote a chapter one. So he was like, no, you need to explain South Carolina. And that's when I started doing that digging. And now I, he's right. I'm an overall historian about South Carolina. I mean, there's still some things 
that's that's wrong. You know, like one of the things that I learned that I put in the book was that South Carolina didn't start giving African-Americans things like birth certificates and death certificates or what have you, specifically death certificates in the book until they were mandated to in 1915. Well, then I started finding, you know, talking to other people and they were showing death records for people in Charleston and other places further away from Edgefield having death records in 1897 and 1895. And I learned then that it was only Edgefield that was being petty <laughs> and not, not doing what they were supposed to do. So it started to give me a knowledge about the place that my family came from and the background that they had to deal with on a regular basis. It was just like, you know, I don't care about you black people. You do you. I'm not putting nothing down unless I'm told to. And that's it. And I think this is like what I'm talking about right now is a perfect segment into Brian because he just wrote just this awesome article about Edgefield and a riot that happened um, in 1898. And even in that particular, in that particular, you know, article that he wrote, that he wrote, it, it shows you how they had no care or concern for black people. I mean, they had their own personal constitution and how it was cutting black people out. And it, it's just, it was just amazing. Edgefield is something else. It's one of the most magical places that I've ever been to in my life, but it's also, it was so raw and, Wow, it was just every everything about Edgefield is just. I, I, it may sound like I'm talking bad about it, but I'm I'm and I'm in awe with Edgefield. I, I actually I love it. I wouldn't want to live, but I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just gonna say that when you study Edgefield in particular, you're studying the entirety of human experience through the yes. good, the bad, and the and the ugly, and the horrific, and the horrific. <laughs> it, it literally it spans all of it. It does. All of it. And this, it does. You know, this this one county. Um so with that little segue, as Donia said, my my preferred style of writing is writing articles that I post on the genealogy adventures on website. And I kind of got into the whole trip because <clears throat> What I was finding researching my specifics, I started with my father's family in Virginia. And when I was uncovering who I was descended from, who I was related to, family histories and stories, I thought I need a way to capture this um, that'll, you know, that a wider audience can actually can actually read and engage with and participate in. Um, but also kind of documenting my own journey, the things that I was learning that I you know, would like to go back to um, on a regular basis. Uh, and as Donia said in the, um, the kind of post for this, uh, for this show, genealogy really has moved away from that three ring binder. And I'm really, even though I get um, all kinds of attacks, I, you know, <clears throat> I get a lot of love and a lot of support, which I really appreciate. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with me. Um, but I do get attacks. I, I do get trolls 
online for, for some of the stuff that I post, but I'm a big boy. I wear my big boy pants. I can suck it up and deal with it. Hmm. The, but the reason, the other reason why I'm really happy that I, that I kind of share what I'm finding about the ancestors is I have met so many family members through my posts. That's how I met Donya. That's how Donya and I met. Um, she yeah. happened to read a post about one of my great, however many times, great grandmothers, uh, Emily Peterson. Uh, yeah. And a mutual cousin of ours told Donia about it. Donia read it, and then we got in touch. What about seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Uh, and I can't imagine not having Donia in my life, and I can't imagine doing the research that I do on Edgefield without Donia and quite a few of our quite a few of our other cousins as well. Yeah. So through kind of sharing my experience, sharing my journey, sharing tips and tricks online, you know, I've actually built up a really wonderful research uh, community of you know, cousins who are, we all support each other. You know, we get irritated like anyone else. We, you know, we get bumped up against a brick wall or you know, we just find something that just blows our mind <laughs> with regards to our family. We just pick up the phone. And I can go, Loretta, you will never guess what I just found. Or I can go, Donya, are you sitting down? Take a deep breath, because I've got something to hit you. <laughs> um, so that's, for me, that, that was, it's been a really, really wonderful kind of experience. <clears throat> I'd like to write a book. At the moment, I keep feeling that a book is too much of a commitment for me. So at least, you know, if I try to write once every week, once every two weeks, fairly short form writing, kind of get in say what I want to say, make the point that I want to make, share tips or tricks, or just share little histories. And that's a format that works really, really well for me. But I would probably say that the last article that I wrote, unusual for me because it is, it is a fairly long article. It's got a lot of newspaper clippings for people to read um, and whatnot. But again, I, I have found out more about American history by doing research and writing about it than I ever learned in school or that I probably will ever learn in any other way, shape, or form. And I think one of the things that blew you away about the last article was saying that in 1868, which wasn't that long after the end of slavery, talking about uh, that first kind of state Congress in South mm -hmm. Carolina, the mm -hmm. sheer number of African-American men who were elected to public office in South Carolina. And as yes. you know, I think what you, know, you can talk about this for yourself, but what Donnie was sharing with me was the fact that these men were landowners, they could read and write. So basically they had what, three or four years from the end of slavery to three. being elected to read, write, own land, and just be normal citizens, it, just, just be everyday citizens. It was actually like two, two to three years. That's, yeah. You know, because some of them didn't know that they were freed. And so when you look at this, this number here, I'm, I'm pulling up the actual um, where you said it at, because this here it is. You said in South Carolina, more than any other southern state, freed men took advantage of their newfound political rights constituting 60% of the state's voting population. They elected 73 African-Americans out of 124 total delegates to the 1868 Constitutional Convention. So I need people to like really realize what was just said just now. 
1868. We all know that in 1865, the Civil War was ended. There were some people that didn't know that they were now free. And we know that even today, where there have been articles talking about someone who was still in, um, enslaved in 1960, some in Louisiana, and they were still being enslaved people. So to be 1865 that it was free, that they were quote unquote free, and now this says 1868, three years later, these men are elected to high ranking officials. They are now high ranking officials. Does that boggle anybody else's mind other than mine? I mean, seriously, these people couldn't read, they couldn't write, or they weren't supposed to have been able to read, they weren't supposed to have been able to write. Um, they couldn't speak properly, according to the, you know, them. But all of a sudden, in, in this short, very short period of time, these men became landowners, they became doctors, they became lawyers, they became educators, they became politicians, they, they became, I mean, whatever it is that you think of, they became all of this stuff in that very, very short period of time. And, and it was these types of things that happened that brought about that brought about the Jim Crow era, the black codes, the because it's it scared people. It scared them like, how did they do this? How did they become that intelligent in that short period of time? That's because they were always intelligent. That's because they were always right there, and it was just a mix of people that were that were missed for a very long time. That shouldn't have been, you know. And, it's crazy. and again, the, the same article learning that there was a large proportion of of black people in South Carolina who did become landowners. They weren't large scale landowners. I mean, they owned anything from maybe ten acres to two hundred and fifty acres, which would come into play when when the riot happened. And I'll I'll just do like a, a really kind of short history blurb. But what I really wanted to say was this article also answered questions about what was going on with part of Donia's family and part of my family. We were living in the very, very northern part of uh, Edgefield that became Greenwood, um, which is where this, this riot happened. Because I couldn't understand why all of a sudden names that were very familiar to me, I couldn't find them in Edgefield at, say, around 1900. They just weren't there. We're talking hundreds of people just gone. So I figured, you know, the ancestors will let me know when they feel the time is right for me to know, and I'll be able to pick up the thread on this one. So reading about this, uh, this race riot, this, uh, well, basically, it wasn't even a race riot, it was more voter suppression riot in 1898. Because the, the basically, this, the governor of the state, Mr. Tillman, he changed the law to basically say that not only did black people have to prove that they could read and then comprehend what they were reading, he raised the land ownership minimum to 300 acres. Now, I mean, I had to have a four times great grandfather, Lewis Matthews, who inherited 200 acres um, from his white father. 200 acres, he couldn't vote. Um, and 200 acres for, for Edgefield, for a black man, that, that was a sizable amount of, sizable amount of property um, to have. So I can imagine, you know, there, there were black folk in Edgefield who, um, well, in South Carolina, who felt some kind of way going, well, wait, wait a minute, you're, cha you're changing the rules. <clears throat> you're changing the rules now. 
And then in the course of reading all the various news articles about that riot, which is called the, um, the Phoenix riot, it literally said so many black people left the area, just thousands of them left. Some of them were forced to leave. Others just thought, I'm getting out of Dodge. Things are getting a little too crazy around here. That the white population that, were, that remained, they didn't have a workforce. And they actually started panicking, going, whoa, hold up, son. Way too, many, way too many of our workforce are leaving. And they were leaving for places like Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, D.C., New York, Philadelphia. Um, but I said they actually ran press articles going, Edgefield, Greenwood, you're going to have to cool your jets because things are getting a little too crazy. You're running around <laughs> shooting people, lynching people. People are disappearing. People are leaving the state in droves. We have to have people stay to work. And uh, as I said, you will, you will see various articles about that. And the other good thing was I, was, I have been able to slowly pick up the, the threads of all the people who left because I roughly know, where, you know what part of the country they went to. Just after the uh, just after the riot, um, the other thing that you'll see with my longer articles, probably what I call my more historic history related articles, you will see a full list of all the books that I've read on the subject. It's kind of like academic writing, so I list all the books that I've read, all the periodicals that I've read, all the newspaper articles that I've read, just so people can see that I'm not talking out of my backside. That. You know, I am pulling that information from, from respective sources, um, which is something to bear in mind, whether you're blogging or, you know, whether you're posting articles on a website. If you are writing about anything that can be deemed contentious or people are like, wait a minute, where did you get those numbers from? Where did you get those figures from? Always include a list of books that you've read, sources that people can go to to verify what it is that you're saying. Well, Brian, one of the things that, that I like, that I admire about you as far as um, your blogging is concerned is that your commitment to it is so deep. Like, how do you set your, if I'm not mistaken, you set a schedule as to when you're just writing. You're just doing writing for that. And, and how you separate the fact that writing for a book is easier than writing is harder than writing for the blog and i mean i see it i think i see it totally different i think the blog is easier but you set the schedule for it you know you you really set aside time and and you're you're devoted to your to your followers because you have a lot you you've built a huge following on your blog and if you guys didn't see it this is um the blog post site right here that I'm putting up. Um, but you, you built this huge following on this, on this blog and you have breakdowns of what's what, where you have things like, for example, you, you do things, you separate your, um, let me see. So when I look at, when I look at this, you have a homepage and then it's broken into different sections. Like you'll have our shows, then you have researching services, 
you talk about anything that you're posting about your Matthews family, you have a, a post for that, a post for your Rome family, a post for your Sheffy family, just overall African, like you, this takes time. <laughs> this takes way, a, a whole lot of time to, you know, really go through that. So I guess my question is, what made you just like break stuff down in the way that you did? Like these, there it's just awesome. How you've done it. Thank you for that. I guess because of the blog is the website's been going for so long. I mean, it's been what 13, 14 years now. So it's kind of it's grown very, very organically. And by going into my analytics, my analytics, I mean all the kind of data and information that uh, web providers send me about how many people visit per day, what the most popular articles are, how they actually surf. You know, if they hit one article, read another one, I can kind of plot where they're going. And as, you know, I, when I first started, I tried to write at least once a week. Now it's probably once every two weeks. Um, but as the readership grew and the body of articles grew, I needed to think about how it would be easy for people to surf around the website to find the information that they wanted to have. So you were right. You know, when it comes to like uh, genealogy tips and tricks, you know, there's the keywords that people can click on to be able to get all the articles that are just on that one subject, or they can click a link at the tab, you know, a link at the top of the, the main menu and be able to go straight to it. Like my Sheffy cousins are just addicted to Sheffy family history. It's not, <laughs> that they're not it's not that they're not interested in the other stuff, but that's the stuff that hooks them. So they want to be able to click that Sheffy link and to see what the latest article is about the family right. or about what, about one of our ancestors. Um, trust me, Edgefield should have its own link, and it probably will do. I mean, there's enough on there now about Edgefield to kind of to kind of warrant that um, kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. No, I'm just agreeing with you. I, I I just totally agree. Yeah, it 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 should have its own link. Um, so again, to kind of recap on your question, a lot of the decisions that I've made about why the website looks the way it does is understanding all the people that, that visit it, how they surf around it, what they're looking for, and to make, and just to, to kind of realize that most people would be interested in those topics and to make it as easy as possible for them to get to the information that they want to get to. So let me show them. I'm going to... Um... I'm going to add it up to the, to the group and I'm going to put it solo. But um, I want to show you guys his page. It's awesome. So this is the page. It's and and and, and it's an awesome blog. It, the blog is just it's it's just so great. Um you have all of the shows listed here and again it's freezing. And then here's the Phoenix riot as it pops up. This article right here talks about our our cousins, Esther Harris and, and Eliza Good. Both of them were murdered during this time. Um, both riots, both the one that I was talking about in my book and the one that he's talking about right here were about voter suppression. Sound familiar? That's today. So, and he just gives you all this information I strongly suggest that you guys go to his site and definitely look at it, read it, get involved because this is something that you you just 
you just can't beat. You know, this type of information that that Brian is offering to you on on this page is on this blog is is awesome. So let's. Well, talk Kathy, to, um, I was going to say you touched on something really important that I meant to say and completely forgot. So I could have just written a standard kind of short article about the depth of Essex. But the more that I researched, the reason why I decided to make a much longer kind of um, more traditional article was because there was a lot of tragedies and a lot of bad decisions that were done at the state level that actually led to Essex's death. Yeah, it puts yeah. it put it put his and Eliza's death as well as all the other people who were <clears throat> who were lynched and or run out of town. Yeah. Um, into an overall context, you could see from 1868, that 30, actually it's exact, that 30 year period between 1868 and 1898, all the badness that happened, that fight, that just led to that eruption. Um, so you were gonna read out some questions? Yeah, so let, let's go into some of people were um, making some comments while we were doing it. Uh, so Karen was responding when we were talking about the 1868 and she said, amazing that it happened. She said, sadly, Bruce changed to knock them out of politics. Which were, okay. Um, which were things like the Jim Crow laws and the black codes and things like that. You're absolutely right. And then Janine said, and sadly, she said, and sadly, the Jim Crow laws were applied to the native peoples of Alaska as well. She said that blew my mind when I found that out. The thing is, Janine, is that the black codes, um, the Jim Crow laws, all of those things were directed towards minorities. It wasn't just black people, it was minorities as a whole. And you know, that I think I learned one time, you know, you guys, if you guys don't know it, I'm an Uber driver. I do do Uber. And I get to talk to so many different people. And I actually spoke with one Native American woman who talked about how they fought to be considered white. And now there's this whole problem. But they had to fight to be considered white so they can get certain things and be able to have certain abilities, you know, being able to do certain things. But these laws were originally you know, applied to them. They were applied to black people. They were applied to minorities. And it, it, it's crazy. So I, I thought that was crazy. And then Michelle says, um, I believe Brian and I discussed the same about my great-great-grandfather who built seven churches, a school with the dormitory and the city bridge. Wow, which who was that, guys? Yeah, Michelle, would you like to share, share, share more about that? Yeah, tell us who that is. And um, I just wanted, to reply, said, I just wanted to reply to, to Karen. Going, Karen, probably for the last couple of years, what you just touched on has been one of the biggest questions in my mind. <laughs> that had the Black Codes not been, had they not kicked in, had they not become a thing, what America would actually be? I mean, we will never have the answer to this question. It would probably have to be a sci-fi series about an alternative universe. Mm -hmm. But what would have actually, what America would have been like, what it would be like today if everyone had just had a love, let's live and let live mentality back in the 18, you know, back in 1868, 1869. That, you know, that, that's something that really intrigues me. Yeah. 
So do you guys have any um, questions for me or Brian as far as how to write a book or how to get into a blog? You know, we're sharing this because we want you to share your stories. Your stories is what fills in the gaps for things in your history class that you just know is missing. And it, it actually fills in the gaps. So we want you to definitely share your stories. Um, Brian, she said Alexander Hill Thompson yes. from Lumberton, North Carolina. Yeah, he, he, was, a, he was a busy man. <laughs> he, was, he was a busy man. But again, some of what he's done has been acknowledged. I mean, you'd have to really go deeply into Google Books to, um, to see his name, to see what he accomplished. What he accomplished, I mean, it should be kind of, I don't know if I want to exaggerate and say everyday conversation, but his, his name should be a lot more high profile than, than what it is. And going to the writing, um, we never actually talked about this, Donia. I, I would imagine for someone who's contemplating writing about their family history, no matter what form it actually takes, it's the getting started. It's the, <laughs> it's the knowing what you want to write about, because a lot of times what you want to write about is going to inform the format that your writing is going to take. Okay. Um, for what Donnie wanted to do, a book was really the only way that you could you could do that. Yeah, yeah. So Stacy L asks, how did you organize your thoughts for writing a book? Um, <laughs> how did I organize my thoughts? Well, technically my thoughts were already organized because like I said, I actually did a blog first. So a lot of my stories were already just kind of sitting out there. They weren't as in detail, but they were already sitting out there in the, in the universe on my um my blog. My blog was called We Are Yeldales because originally I was just doing the research on my on my grandparents and and so it was just Yeldales Peterson seniors. That was it. But it wasn't until I started doing that research on all of them that I realized that I had over 200 names that connected to me. And if you guys see the front of my cover, I don't know how well you could see it, but these are all of the names that connect to my family. And um, with my Yeldales at the very bottom <laughs> listed in alphabetical order. So it's a huge, huge family. And my order, basically my thoughts were already organized because I was already telling the stories. I just went into in depth with them, and and that's what happened. So, oh, very interesting, very interesting comment from Martha Marshall. I grew up about five miles from the Phoenix riots and went to school with Tolbert descendants. Well, Tolberts are part of our family too. Tolberts and Talberts, are part of our family. There are Tolberts who are also Brooks descendants. Oh yeah, we we know that we know those families just wrapped around each other uh, quite a bit. Of it, because again, what I didn't say is part of part of the reason why there was a riot was you had a <clears throat> white Republican uh, congressional candidate whose name was oh, I want to call him Benjamin Tolbert, but that he was a Tolbert. I can't remember his first name at the minute, not for love nor money. Um, the after and he basically he copped almost the entirety of the blame for the whole riot because he was a Republican. And again, a little short history lesson. When I say Republican, I don't mean the Republican Party of today. Hmm. The Republican Party before 1968, which 
if I had to have an analogy, probably resembled more of a kind of central okay. or conservative uh, Demo the Democratic Party that we know today. Oh, okay. Whereas no. the Democratic Party of, you know, back then, more like the Tea Party of today, more like the kind of evangelical party of today. So they, they really did kind of kind of swap. So anyway, you had this white Tolbert who was a congressional candidate for you know the, the Greenwood section. He had family members who were shot and killed. Other part and they were huge landowners. These people were enormous landowners and Greenwood. They had to leave. They had to leave except for two of them. All the other ones had to leave everything, had to basically sell their land and get out because they were told, it ain't safe for you. This is not a safe place for you to be. Um, so yeah, there was that kind of, that, that whole thing going on too. You know, that's the great thing about Edgefield because they didn't discriminate on who they fought. <laughs> no, they did you know, not. They were, they were so, um, they were so, it was black, white, purple, green. It didn't matter. They fought each other and they fought each other over the pettiest things and sometimes over the things that was, you know, really it just ranged. It didn't matter. They they had this fighting spirit, but with that fighting spirit, and this is where the magic of Edgefield comes into me, is that in that fighting spirit, they saved every last one of their documents. So if you are lucky enough to be able to find someone who you connect to from Edgefield, South Carolina, I guarantee you there's going to be some record on it. And they saved all of them. We're talking about the Civil War where the Union went and was burning down towns just as they walked through. They were setting them to flame. They tried to do that to Edgefield, and Edgefield wasn't happening. It was not happening. It was. It, it just. It just was not happening. And I. That's the magic of that area they did not play games it didn't matter who they were when we talk about um my cousin john he was in pennsylvania and he was like if y'all leave me and they finally found out that he actually was who he was because his story is is one that's just needs to be in movies and um he changed his name he changed his whole identity, actually, and disappeared on them for five years because he was accused of murdering um, a man. They ended up finding him. And when they found him, it was this whole big to do. It was a trial. It was so big that the New York Times actually labeled him as the most talked of colored man in the land. When I tell you guys, when I was finding this story and I was researching it and reading it, this story was in newspapers stretching from East Coast to West Coast. It didn't matter. We had Kansas, we had Washington State, we had Cal places in California. I mean, I found hundreds of articles just stretched all across, but you never heard this man's name in your history books. But yet he was more famous than Frederick Douglass during his time. So how does that happen? Like, where how does that happen but <laughs> this is what i'm this is what i'm saying as far as um he was just he 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 made comments where you saw the strength of him come out and it was an edgefield strength you know he was like if i disappear if i go with these two men on this train i won't make it to the train station y'all better figure something out 
And because he said that, that caused a month-long journey <laughs> of proving this man's innocence as far as whether he killed someone or not. It's it's an awesome story. But um, <laughs> go ahead. I think that we're kind of spoiled. I'm, well, I'm going to share another story that I've written about, but I think you and I are kind of spoiled by Edgefield because I don't know if it's the best analogy. It was the Wild West centuries before there was a Wild West. Before the wild, yes, it was. Yes, it and was. I, will, I can't remember who it was. I will always, always giggle about it. There was um, an Edgefield native who fought the, the Alamo battle. I remember he's, it was uh, something that you shared with me and something about the uh, his, the book. <laughs> It was like a colonel or a commander is like, well, what, you know, why are you here? And he's like, well, because I'm Edgefield and it's safer to be here fighting in the Alamo than it is for me to be back home. Yeah, that's basically what he said. Yeah, <laughs> it was a quote. I couldn't believe that. I'm like, Dad, he can't even go home because he feels safer in a war than he does at home. But that was Edgefield. That, that was Edgefield. But we have some more comments, Brian. Mm -hmm. So, um, Let's see here. Stacy loves the blog. That was the same person that asked the question. Thank and you, Stacey. Yeah, she loves the blog. And we read about Martha. And okay, Deborah. Deborah says, since I've been researching, I've also learned so much about history as well, especially its impact on today's issues. Great, great topic. My understanding and knowledge has so increased, especially related to race. Um, race relations, so many insights. Everyone can learn so much by exploring the history of the period and area in which our families live. Um, she said, have so much to share, say, and ask. Hard to know where to begin. And then Deborah Singleton asks, did you get any blowback from family members about your book? Girl! <laughs> <laughs> I have family members that haven't even purchased my book. I'm I'm just gonna be honest, and and it's and then the sad thing is, it's not even what they think. That that's the sad thing. It's not what they think, and um, I, I hope they buy it. And if any of them are watching, and I'm talking immediate family, um, the families that I found purchased my book. The ones that I know purchased my book. Um. My mom and them, of course, purchased my book. My siblings purchased my book. I have a couple of close cousins, and I do mean a couple, like maybe two or three, purchased my book. But you guys have to understand that my, my immediate family is over 500 people. So to say me and my siblings, my mom, my siblings, and a couple of cousins out of maybe 500 people, you go from there. <laughs> so, and, it, and it's sad, like I said before, it's, it's not what they think. It's not even, it's nothing of what they think. Um, Which is also suitable for, for blogging or, or web writing. Um, I've been very, very fortunate that I've had no blowback from family members, but I can intuitively know what's going to be a sensitive subject to touch on and perhaps not write about. So for instance, after I did a DNA test, um, my mother's father, his father was supposed to have been an Irishman, big burly Irishman. That's what we were told. 
Patrick Turner from somewhere over in Ireland. No one really knew where it was, but that was the story that we were told. Well, the DNA test said something completely different. It's like, uh, yeah, 20% uh, Eastern European Jewish. And for a hot second, I'm like, wait, I'm like, how did that happen? But then I knew there was only, that could only have been a great-grandparent, and there was only ever a question mark over it, the identity of one of my great-grandparents, and I immediately knew that it was my maternal grandfather's father. Um, and with the work of Jewish uh, DNA cousins, within a couple of weeks, um, we knew exactly who had fathered both my, my maternal grandfather and his sisters. Um, and I've met my Jewish cousins. Um, you know, we speak on the phone, we send emails back and forth. They are really, really lovely, and we're all trying to push that family history back. But even my mother, you know, my mother's siblings, they're really interested and they're really intrigued. But because it is so new and not all of the Jewish cut, the word hasn't gotten out into as many of the Jewish side of the family as we'd like it to, for me to be comfortable to write about that. And, you know, the other part of it is it's a very painful story. Um, very fortunate that my Jewish ancestor and his siblings kind of, he came to America in the 1890s. All of the family that was left behind in Belarus, which is where they were from, was sad, was unfortunately inside. All of them were wiped out in World War II. Mm -hmm. Not a single one, not a single one of them survived. So even though they're people that I've never met, many of their names I don't even know because to get access to the records, well, the records were either destroyed or they just haven't been digitized. Um, it's really painful. Um, I feel myself welling up even, even thinking about all of that side of the family that I never knew, never knew I had, but they're still my family. I still, you know, I still feel a certain way about them. So I don't feel comfortable in myself writing about it. I don't necessarily think that there are other parts of the family who've emotionally prepared themselves to like actually read about that. So that's that's a topic that I'm quite happy to to put to one side. Um, mm -hmm. In the course of looking at my black family, I've come across some truly horrific stories of things that happened to them in their enslavement when they were enslaved. Um, I don't feel comfortable writing about that. Um, and that that case, I would just rather let the dead rest in peace. Um, I don't see any benefit of sharing that kind of history. Everyone knows how bad slavery was. Even if they want to pretend in their minds that it wasn't as bad as it was, deep down, we know what slavery was about. And I would rather them, I would rather those ancestors and those kin be remembered for more positive reasons than say something horrific that happened to them. And even with my free people of color, I was telling Donnie about a relation in North Carolina who had 13 kids. Um, slave catchers rode through while she was at the river washing clothes. Um, she was knocked out, probably hit with um, with a log or something in the back of her head. She almost drowned because she rolled, part of her, part of her body rolled into the river, and he stole nine of her children. And she didn't get many of them back. And these were free people of color. I mean, she had to go to court. This guy standing up to the judge going, I'm not going to tell you where the kids are because they're just a bunch of black people. That's not the word he used. You can fill in the blanks. Not really a story I want to write about. Uh, I'm not even mentioning their names, even, kind of um, even, even discussing it. So it's, as a writer, you have to kind of check yourself as much as you want to tell a story. You sometimes have to step back a bit and go, 
why do I want to tell this story? And what is the, the overall message that's going to come out of it? Um, even with Essex, Essex Harrison, I mean, he had a horrific end. That was a horrific death. Mm. But within the kind... I guess I decided to really write about that because the whole voter suppression thing was so relevant to everything that's going on in the United States today. Right. That was the larger message that I, right. that I wanted to convey. Now, you know, I, I, and, and I, even though I, I respect and I understand what you just said, but I feel totally different. I, I want their names called. I want people to know them. I want them to, to remember the pain, the pain that they went to, through to make and create what we live in today. And remind, I feel like if they're reminded of that pain that they went through, then people will make sure that that never happens again. This is why my, the book has everybody's name up there. Because from now on, and for every time somebody picks up my book, they're going to call out their names. They're calling out every last one of their names. And, and that's the ending of the book, as a matter of fact. That's that's the last chapter when we talk about the reunion and, and we go into all of these different things. You're going to know my family, whether you want to or not. <laughs> you know, this is this is who they are. This is how great they are and who I came from and how strong we are. And that's that's the strength that I got from them as I was writing the book. Um, I mean, when we talk about my great-great-grandmother, Martha, she was a breeder for her father, for her dad. Her father took her children and sold them. Damn. I mean, it's just, how do you, how do you, how do you even wrap your mind around something like that? I mean, I have like Deborah is is putting up here her feelings. It's it's kind of long, so I'm not gonna read it, Deborah. But she's putting up here her feelings on how she felt when she found out that her family was owning slaves, and that's the part that that a lot of people are missing too. The fact that white people were 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 um what's the word I'm looking for? They they were bothered by this as well. It's not bothered, but they were they were scarred by slavery too. So I think. That because their mind, the imagination is so strong, it allows people to really block out the worst part of slavery. Whereas if I tell my story about my great-great-grandmother, you can't block that out because it's right there. That's why the man got mad, remember? On the, on the thing, he was like, why are you talking about this? You're not a slave. I'm talking about my family. Why are you mad? Because I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about my grandma. I'm remembering my grandmother who just happened to be enslaved. So you and you're angry about it. Don't be angry about it. Listen to it. Learn from it. Understand it and make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, it it that's the main thing. I'm not living in the past. I'm not trying to bring up the past. I just want you to know that the past did happen and the and the intricate details of it. Because as the Uber driver, one of the first questions Uber drivers are asked is, so is this the only thing you do? So, of course, I'm going to say no. I'm a genealogist. I do my research. And they're like, oh, what did you find? And I start telling them. And do y'all know if I had the name out of 50 of the people that I've driven, maybe four knew what a breeder was? Maybe four. So with that being said, they don't know. 
they, they don't know they don't know the real the real horrific details of slavery. They're not sure. They're not positive. We have so many people who are not sure. And that's that's why I do it. So I mean I agree with what you're saying to a certain extent, but I just do it opposite. Which brings me to a to a good point. Um little tip for um for writers, no matter how what form your writing takes. And that because you just reminded me something, Donia. Um, when we were first kind of when we were first promoting the book, I picked about three or four um, <laughs> very very different people. I can't even call them characters because they were family. They were they were real living, breathing, thinking people. But I chose three or four to write little snippets about. But I did it as though it was in their own words, as though they could actually be with us, be with us here now. How they would have described their life and two hundred and basically what Donya wrote about them. In 200 words or less. Uh, and it was the Martha Brooks one, who was um, Donya's ancestor, who was the, the, the breeder. I didn't pull my punches because Martha wouldn't let me pull my punches. It, you no. know, started off, you know, Miss Martha, why do you have so many kids? Well, if I had a, if I had a nickel for every time I was asked that, I'd own the big house. All this Brooks land that you see around here. She basically, you know, basically said, I only had three choices. Comply, face the whip, or kill myself because that was it those were the yeah. choices she had there was no running away because if you try to run away you're going to probably be caught she survived the best way that she could well one of the comments that donia and i got for that was i'm going to say something i'm going to sing the song from frozen let it go why do you people all why do you people always come dredge up slavery <laughs> well probably a, th a probably a third a quarter to a third of my family was enslaved. That was their experience. If I'm yeah. going to write about my ancestors, and I write about all of my ancestors, but if I'm going to write about an enslaved ancestor, I'm going to be honest, and yes, I'm going sir. to tell their story honestly. I ain't going to sugarcoat it because their life wasn't sugarcoated. Right. And it's so funny because when we got that that one, Brian was like, delete, delete. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get this is gonna start a whole thing. And I was like, no, don't delete it. Keep it up there and let's get it in. Because at this point, this is where they're gonna have the people are gonna have the form to be able to honestly make their comments and and have an adult conversation that needs to be had. And that's why I was like, no, do not delete it. And then um, Deborah said that, you know, she, she says that it seems to be happening and continuing to this day. One meaning what we were talking about as far as slavery and not letting it happen again and all that other stuff. And she's right. And that's because people don't know or they do know and, uh, and, and they, they're, they're, they're showing a blind eye. They're having a blind, they got their blinders on it right here. They're looking straight ahead and that's it. And they don't see the stuff that's happening on the outside and all that, everything. So yeah, I mean, it's it's like that. And this so, is what so. we want y'all to do. We want y'all to, to share your stories and, and, and people need to know what's going on regardless and what happened. Go ahead, Brian. So, I was just gonna say, <laughs> Don't let the possibility put you off put sharing you your stories, stories or writing your stories. Let's right. face it, there's just some people who have way too much time on their hands. They're looking, they're spoiling for a fight. They like to just cause nonsense. They post yes. nonsense. They want to cause nonsense. 
they want to stir some nonsense online. And when you know when you are engaging with it, well, you don't have to engage with the troll, but if a troll leaves a comment or tries to start a fight with you, don't immediately react. Um, and I have to remind myself about this as much as anyone else does. Um, take a deep breath, take a couple of steps back, and try to think of different ways that you can either just shut the person down or you know just engage with them. Right. So Brian, it's five oh five. No way. It's five oh five. And this was really great. Um, I'm glad you guys definitely added in the comments and I want you to keep adding in your comments. You know, share your your stories, share your how you feel. Make sure you let everybody know how you feel. And if you have questions about how to get your book started what, or how to get your blog started, you know, post it here. Because Brian and I, read, we go back and we read the comments all the time. We, we have a, a notification for each and every one of our videos. So if somebody sends a, a comment to it, we read it. And if we can answer it right then and there, we answer it right then and there. But this is this is the forum to... Um, to get that out. And we will post um, the link to my book. I'll also post the link to the Facebook page of the book because that's where those stories are. And that's where you guys can see the comments where people were like really getting involved and trying to start the argument. And I'm very proud. Matter of fact, I'm damn proud of Brian and I because we controlled that. It was one of the most controlled things that I've ever seen for a slavery conversation. And there were several. So, um, but definitely, you know, we'll be back. Next time you see us, it'll be next year. It'll be 2019. I know. We'll be able to share more stuff and, and you know, um, Karen says thanks for today. Deborah Singleton said darn good show. I'm glad you liked it. Um, Martha also said great session. Stacy says I'd like to write a book. How do I get started? Okay. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to answer that question real quick because that's too much to type. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you start writing down your thoughts. You start, like Brian said, you, you figure out what you want to write about and then you form around that. So it's more like brainstorming. You brainstorm what you want to write about. I knew that I wanted to just tell my story in general. So in telling my story, I had to tell different things about different people and what I found. But I suggest... First and foremost, you brainstorm. You you talk, think about what it is that you want to write about. Who, what story do you want to tell? Is it one story or is it your journey? Figure out the pros and cons of each. And then once you get to that point, then you can actually start writing down. Like say you chose, okay, I want to tell different stories. We start writing down those stories and write them in detail. You're writing them in detail because it gives you the opportunity to know how long the story is. And it also will allow you to then say, okay, well, maybe I'll just write about this person if it's that long or so on, you know, something to that nature. But I, I definitely say definitely, you know, brainstorm first and foremost. Well, I would probably say it's a little bit different for writing a, for writing a blog or um 
a website filled with articles. Because really with um with your blog post or your article, you want to keep to just one subject or one overall theme. Right. So again, for, for the last one that I did, it wasn't just enough to write about the Phoenix riot. I had to write about how the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were not, in terms of 1898, not the parties that we know them to be today. So I had to spend a little bit of time discussing that. Then I had to go into talking about the 1868 election, the 1895 changes to the South Carolina uh, Constitution. Because without knowing that, without kind of seeing that timeline and understanding all those factors, we didn't really have gotten the full breadth of why that particular riot happened and why it happened the way it did and its whole kind of aftermath. Right. Whereas other ones, they're just really, you know, they're, they're much, I wouldn't say easier to write, but they're much more straightforward to write. Um, right. Usually four or five paragraphs, job done, click publish, you're good to go. Um, so in a book, you can explore many different themes. I think Donya's done a really good job because even though her book touches on things like religion, politics, history, sociology, psychology, <clears throat> in different time periods, yeah. it's, they all flow together. And it just creates this really, really rich, varied kind of a story about Edgefield. But a book will allow you to do that. A blog? Not necessarily. You can do it by, by touching on specific themes over a course of time, uh, different articles and different blog posts. So like I said, it's slightly different form of writing than, than writing a book. Well, um, yeah, and like I said, you guys, we will definitely put in, in the comment section the link to my book, the link to the Facebook page for the book, the link to the blog. And once you get the link to the blog, you can like click on individual titles and you can read all of the articles. So Deborah was asking that question. Oh, bless, you, Deborah, bless you, Deborah, for your comment about our ages. I'm not going to say anything. Donna can speak for herself. Huh? Me, I, me, I'm a true son of Moses Williams and I hide my age very well. I'm, and I'm a daughter of Moses Williams. I'll tell you my age. I have no problem. I'm 46. And um, a lot of people don't believe it when they see it because I have not one wrinkle. Um, very smooth, clear skin. People do not believe that I have a 25, a 22, a 19, and a 17-year-old. But I do. I am 46 years old. And um, all but, like I said, all links... You, when I put for Michelle, when I put the link on here, you'll be able to just click right on Amazon and purchase the book. Um, and, and thank you for buying it if you get ready to buy it. So yeah, we'll, we'll make sure you have the you know links to all of those different things and 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 join the comes to the light page because the comes to the light page goes uh, it, it it does other things. It it follows the genealogy adventures. So if you miss something on Genealogy Adventures, you could possibly catch it on the on Comes to the Light. Um, we are actually in the process of a rewrite for the book. So I'm going to be adding more stuff to it. So you might not want to buy it right now. I don't know. It's up to you. But um, we're just going to we're going to do some things. I got I had gotten a review from the National Genealogical Society, and it was actually a very good review. And there was some tips in it 
And I want to follow those tips. And I want to fix those things that that I that I did have in there, like the South Carolina and, and the death records and everything. I want to fix that. So, um, but yeah, it 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 was a great review. It was a great. I, I can't <laughs> the reviews that I've received so far via Amazon, um, the NGS, and just um, also was reviewed by the Genealogy Magazine, who ends up. <laughs> Somewhere down the line, he has a, a possible relation to us, but he he actually reviewed and it was awesome. So I, I really gotten great reviews from known genealogists and I'm, I'm excited about it. And I do want to rewrite it. I, I want to add some more stuff. I'm leaving Moses alone. I'm not adding nothing else for Moses. <laughs> Moses needs his own book at this point. You guys have no idea. So Sheila already told me that I had to write a book about Moses, and okay, so I, I eventually I will. Um, but yeah, we will definitely post all the links right on this thread within the next fifteen minutes, and you can get the links, and you'll be able to you know follow and make sure you follow Brian's blog. It is awesome. Thank you. And actually, we'll, we will post a link to it. But if you go to the about tab or link in Facebook. The, the the link to the website's right there. Yeah, yeah. But we'll also we'll also post that here. Yes. So I'm done, you guys. <laughs> I'm Brian. I can't believe I'm. Well, I can't believe I'm saying it, but I can't believe that this year has gone by so quickly. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy yes. you know, Happy Seasons, and have a very Happy New Year. And we will see you guys next year. Love you guys. Love you. See you later. Bye.